to Bad Therapy. I'm Kelly, one of your hosts. This episode comes with a pretty minor content note for discussions of assault, but honestly, this ended up being one of our less upsetting conversations. Anyway, I don't really have much of an intro this time. It's been suggested to me that I might want to gently encourage our listeners to like, subscribe, give a rating on iTunes. So do those things if you're enjoying what we have to say. That'd be really cool. I'd love it. Or don't, if you don't feel like doing that, whatever. Either way, you know, I just hope that you're doing well and feeling good about your choices. Anyway, here's the episode. So, Kelly, um, you were the one to suggest our film today that we'll be talking about, Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, I picked Goodwill Hunting, again, from that very lovely Facebook group that I belong to. It was suggested a couple of times. And it's sort of a, a modern classic, I think, especially when you're looking for therapy in film. And yeah, I, I can imagine that this is a movie that's probably influenced how a lot of people think about therapy is you know mm-hmm. kind of the central relationship of the film is between will and his therapist sean played by robin williams and i think it it does a lot of good but it also potentially does a lot of harm as well yeah and yeah. i think kind of that mix is interesting and and worth talking about and also any excuse to watch robin williams is uh appreciated <laughs> He was such a delight. I miss him dearly. I feel like his death was sort of the beginning of the end in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. I I completely agree. I think it was a good mix. It was a mix of some good therapy and some bad therapy. And I think we could talk about both today. And even some of the good therapy kind of uses some bad therapy tropes. Definitely. I think we should talk about. So let's jump in. All right. Of course, uh, Robin Williams, in keeping with the rule of threes or whatever we're calling it, is not the first therapist we see on the screen. So should we start with some of the... uh... Yeah, let's talk about the two therapists prior. I just wrote in my notes, judgy old guy. (laughs) Yeah, the, uh, you know, prestigious expert guy who Mm -hmm. gets completely played by... Oh, we should do a a brief synopsis of the film for anyone who's unaware. So the the movie is about Will Hunting, who is a janitor at MIT, who is also a genius and appears to have an, I believe, eidetic memory is the term. So he is is brilliant. but rather unmotivated. He seems fairly content to just sort of hang out and get drunk with his friends until, you know, he is discovered by an MIT professor who convinces a judge to defer um, jail time for assault if Matt Damon, Will Hunting, my bad, (laughs) agrees to, uh, to work with him and see a therapist a few times a week. Mm-hmm. And so 
eventually he meets Robin Williams and they develop a very strong relationship and Will's life appears to improve. And that's the movie. And the when we're talking about the previous therapist prior to, you know, it shows the the process of Will being this difficult client in therapy uh, based on the fact that he is just not interested in therapy at all, but also super smart that he can outsmart and outplay and manipulate these therapists. And it kind of goes through this procession of, and they mention more than just the two, but they show the two therapists prior to yeah, we see, we see two of them, but uh, we're told that he has seen nine therapists and he wasn't able to, uh, to work with any of them. Yeah, Will is what we would call a resistant client, which is pretty common with patients who have been mandated into therapy mm -hmm. um, by the courts. It is not an uncommon scenario for someone to be court mandated into therapy you know, as a condition of, uh, of parole or a condition of a deferment program. And when you're kind of forced into therapy, a lot of people don't really, uh, they're not the kind of people who would have gone to therapy on their own. And that's mm -hmm. part of why they had to be forced into it. So that can create a very contentious relationship between the patient and therapy as an idea. Yeah, and it can be really difficult to formulate what therapy is about because that person likely doesn't have their own treatment goals in mind. Right. So trying to form that relationship and have any sort of treatment plan can take some time and be really tricky. Uh, and courts are not always the most specific about what their expectations are either. Some are, some aren't. Yeah, a lot of courts kind of use therapy as a bit of a, a band-aid, it seems. At least it feels like from our end. Mm -hmm. um, just, like, just go talk. Just toss them in therapy and that'll, you know, because therapy is where you take bad people and make them good people. Exactly. <laughs> but that is very much what we see with Will. I think he even flat out says, I don't need therapy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, obviously someone who doesn't feel like they need therapy is not going to be particularly receptive to it. And someone like Will, who is, you know, very, very smart and kind of likes to use his natural brilliance to flex on other people more than anything else. Yeah, he, he kind of uses that to make fun of and play with the therapists we see him with. Yeah. And most of them take the bait. Mm-hmm. So the first therapist we see, judgy old guy, he does that very condescending way of trying to relate to build rapport. Mm -hmm. Talks about the music and tries to be all hip with the kids. And it's quite painful to watch. It is excruciating. And you kind of get the sense that this is someone who hasn't been a clinician for a long time. Like, I think when he runs out of the room, he says something like, I have to go be interviewed by CNN or something or whatever. So he, he's someone who's kind of like made his living being an expert, but mm -hmm. hasn't really interacted with patients in a while. And it shows 
Yeah, just book knowledge, no real like connection with patients or connection with the actual therapy work. And even before he like, you know, he kind of does the, the super embarrassing trying to understand Will, he like jumps right in with uh, scolding him essentially. Yeah. Just like, you gotta stop it. You gotta stop what you're doing. <laughs> Like, I think every single therapist makes the joke that, you know, what we do to our patients is just say, stop it. Mm-hmm. And then they're all better. Yeah. <laughs> and this guy isn't trying to make it. He legitimately thinks that he can just tell this, you know, 20 year old man, like, hey, just stop what you're doing. And it'll be better thing you're doing just don't do that anymore (laughs) yeah he makes no attempt to understand why will does the things he does or you know where any of that came from he's just like hey hey you stop it it's truly incredible but i i did write down this quote he says the pressures and i'm not judging them or labeling them They are destroying your potential. So no more shenanigans, no more tomfoolery, no more ballyhoo. And he says all of this in complete sincerity. Mm -hmm. No more shenanigans. None of them. (laughs) Yeah, it's just it's so painful because it's like this like attempt to be all like professional and non-judgy, but then immediately judges. Yeah, it's it's the thinnest of attempts. It's also I wrote down also that his cultural competence with this patient is clearly non-existent. Like he is someone who has obviously not spoken to someone who, you know, hasn't gone to Ivy League schools and and isn't super wealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he hasn't talked to anyone outside of his sort of class i would say in a while and will you know i i didn't mention earlier but he he comes he comes from i think what could generously be described as a working class background you know he's from southie and he grew up kind of in the foster system so we talk a lot about cultural competence in training to be therapists and essentially cultural competence just means like your ability to work with patients from lots of different backgrounds. And unfortunately, in a lot of very well-meaning graduate school courses, that sort of boils down to working with patients of different races and different sexualities, which is, of course, very important. But there are lots of axes on which you need to be culturally competent. And class is one that we're not very comfortable talking about a lot of the time. Yeah, which is bizarre because so much uh, of who we end up working with, especially in mental health, are people from various class backgrounds, especially the working class background. Yeah, a lot of us go into like community mental health, which, you know, generally targets... um, underserved underprivileged populations 
So, you know, a lot of people who don't get to have the same education that we have. I mean, 98% of the population does not have the education we have. We are, we are very privileged people in that sense. And so, yeah, to neglect the ways that like class can interfere in the therapeutic relationship is a real disservice. And I, I also kind of uh, speaking of that and kind of going contrasting this first therapist with Robin Williams' character, um, there's kind of a, a broader potentially negative message about that and therapists. Because it's not to say that the first old judgy guy isn't something that can pop up in therapy. Unfortunately, it pops up a lot. Mm-hmm. But there's this kind of message that unless your therapist has not been through the same experience or shares your same identity they're not going to understand you at all right which i think can be a bit of a a harmful message because the the point the one of the big ways that rob williams character connects with will is because they're both from a working class background in Boston. Yeah. Yeah, like um, Stellan Skarsgård, the the professor who's kind of mentoring Will, makes a point of saying, you know, you'll get through to him better. You're both from Southie, which I think can be kind of a double-edged sword Mm -hmm. because I think I definitely agree with you that the idea that therapists should really only treat people who are just like them And people can only get something of value from a therapist who is just like them is not helpful to anyone. And at the same time, I think it can be important to see something of yourself reflected in your therapist so that there is some sort of commonality is that can be a really important part of establishing that rapport and establishing trust and and safety Mm -hmm. to be vulnerable. Which is why it's important for therapists to work on building that commonality, even if it's not something that's immediately obvious. I I agree. I I mean, I think we can all form some form of commonality regardless. And I think today we can talk a lot about, like a big topic for today is self-disclosure in therapy, because that's big. And how self-disclosure with, connecting with clients and sharing identities can be used in therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was self-disclosure and rolling with resistance were the two things that kept standing out to me in this movie. Do you want to define rolling with resistance? Sure. So rolling with resistance is a term uh, when therapists go with the client's resistance to therapy if a client does not want to talk about a certain topic or is openly defiant towards the therapist or therapy is openly, is hostile. openly hostile um it is the therapist not combating that or arguing with that or trying to maintain control but instead is following where the client leads, following their emotions, their reactions, and not leading the client. 
And the therapist is still, you know, when rolling with resistance, the therapist is still trying to examine things through a therapeutic lens. So I think uh, <laughs> uh, with, with a notable caveat, I think the first session between Sean and Will, when Will is sort of walking around the office and trying to find ways to, uh, to get under Sean's skin, Sean is doing a magnificent job of showing rolling with resistance. You know, everything, everything Will says like, oh, have you read all these books? Yeah, I I have. Did you, have you read them? He's trying to ask questions to get to know Will more than just being like, you need to sit down and let me therapize you. Yeah, no, that was, that was a great example of rolling with resistance and something a good therapist should be attuned to and be able to do because mm-hmm. especially with a client like will a client who's mandated and being, he's openly hostile to everyone he's worked with so far yeah being rigid and bossy in that situation is gonna get you nowhere And kind of throughout their relationship, we continue to see Sean working with that. He does become a bit more um, confrontational with Will as the relationship goes on. But there's never a moment where he says, like, you need to let me be in control of this session. Right. He never tries to control Will. Fill out this worksheet. (laughs) I mean, okay, come on. (laughs) Sorry. We all use the worksheets sometimes. Well, like with with Will with, specifically, right, that would not right. that would not be a good setting to use the worksheets. Fair, yeah. I I would not start Will on like a, a CPT course. <laughs> so yeah, our first therapist has no no ability to roll with resistance whatsoever he gets incredibly defensive immediately mm-hmm. he runs out he calls will a lunatic yeah that was uh, uh then we he... have the second therapist yeah <laughs> no therapist which as we discussed in our last episode you don't just dive and have no therapy i mean what the fuck did they think that was gonna do? This is presumably the first session, and we know Will is like willful and huh, Will is willful, uh, and def- and defiant, and we're going to try to hypnotize him. Not to mention, he already thinks like basic talk therapy is bullshit that he doesn't need. How the fuck did you think something like hypnosis, which is you know? controversial even among psychologists mm-hmm. was gonna help so i mean that is that is just absurd and barely barely warrants any comment yeah but it was quite funny yeah because of course will pretends to be hypnotized and just fucks with them <laughs> yeah it's ugh. okay uh, so finally, finally, we get 
Will to to Sean. But before that opening session, we kind of see Sean uh, teaching a class, actually. And I thought the way he taught the class was also rather indicative of his strengths as a therapist. Yeah. Yeah, because he's very... Down, I mean, a lot of qualities, very down-to-earth, very direct, blunt, and honest. And, of course, one of the advantages of this character being played by Robin Williams is that he uses humor just beautifully to... So funny. Such great jokes. <laughs> but his use of humor is is perfect. You know, it increases the engagement of the students. It makes him feel more approachable chef's kiss no notes and the the topic that they open up with with him talking is trust mm-hmm. and the importance of trust and building rapport which is of course a huge theme going forward and where we see this contrast between will's previous therapist and will about to work with sean right and it's like it's basically foreshadowing mm-hmm um, I was a little confused, just, and this is me being absolutely pedantic, so apologies, but like the structure of this course, it kind of looked like it was an undergraduate course. And first of all, you do not learn how to do therapy in undergraduate work. No. <laughs> like, not at all. Um, but then, like, you go from how, one course on how to, or one class on how to build rapport to talking about Freud, he said was going to be their next topic. I was, I was confused. Yeah, maybe maybe they were talking about Rogers or something. Maybe this is like a history and foundations of psychology, which normally would not see Rogers before Freud. But yeah, usually you'd see Freud first. But whatever, who cares? Again, I'm being a, a pedant, and I do not apologize. Because what's the I point of having that. a podcast if you're not pedantic as fuck? <laughs> I do love the quote. And next time we're gonna learn about how Freud used so much cocaine to kill a horse. <laughs> apparently that was lifted directly from robin like one of robin williams stand-up routines like that's a joke that he told on stage that's wonderful <laughs> uh but yeah like when he notices his class isn't paying attention he says uh trust is very important to getting your client to sleep with you which is the goal of any good therapist and then they're brought right back so mm-hmm. so yeah perfect all right, and then we get to Will and Sean's first meeting. Yes, which almost goes well. Why is it's choking you, such you, a thing? Right? <laughs> this is our second. <laughs> we got, we got our that for Officer Porter. Again, makes much more sense if you think he's actually an undercover cop. But yeah, so... As we said, Will spends much of the session, you know, wandering around, trying to get under Sean's skin. Mm-hmm. And it's ultimately... Not answering anything himself. Yeah. Ultimately, he, uh, he, he gets to this painting that, this little paint-by-numbers that Sean has done, and concludes from it that... Sean was unhappy in his marriage or whatever, which is a pretty stunning conclusion to come to from a painting, mm-hmm. especially a paint by numbers scenario. <laughs> but he he starts kind of 
needling Sean about his marriage. And that is clearly where Sean draws the line. And Will kind of presses it further, uh, right up until Sean physically assaults him Mm -hmm. and threatens to kill him if he ever disrespects his wife again. Great foundation for any therapeutic relationship. (laughs) So... Okay. What are your thoughts here? So I think my my main thought is it does fall into this very dramatic movie trope of like, yeah, it was, you know, an assault, but it can be recovered because it was so real and so connecting and... You know. And Will is used to violence, so he he knows how to respond to violence. Yeah, and you know, this doesn't mean you know, and then it shows uh Sean then being like, Yeah, meet next week, so I'm uh, gonna keep going with this. When in any real scenario, you call the police. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sean would Sean would at minimum be charged with assault and have his license suspended. I did. I wrote down, like, can you imagine the note he would have to write for that session? <laughs> like, session discontinued after approximately two minutes due to this writer assaulting, threatening, and ejecting patients. <laughs> Next session scheduled for Thursday at four. Submitted to entrance. <laughs> <laughs> just be incredible to read so i know that this is kind of a controversial scene because you know people make the argument that this was the only way to reach will you know he had shown that he wasn't going to be responsive to conventional therapy so this was the only way to reach him and just from you know i think the people who make that argument largely are not therapists Mm -hmm. Because believe it or not, assaulting difficult clients is not a standard practice for engaging people. It is never okay. (laughs) It's never okay to lay hands on your patient. No. Especially a patient who has experienced physical trauma. The minute you introduce violence into the relationship, that is the end of trust. What trust can you build at that point? Yeah. When the patient knows that violence is always on the table. We know that clients can be engaged in other ways. (laughs) Not to mention, we've discussed uh, corrective experiences a lot. But the point of a corrective experience is to be able to let the client enact something that you, like, a pattern that they have in their lives and allow them to experience a more desirable, positive outcome from that pattern. Will is someone who is used to violence. So you are actually perpetuating the pathology by becoming violent with him. Mm -hmm. You are engaging in the pattern of Will's trauma, of Will's 
pattern in his relationships, which is not going to be very healing at all. In fact, do more harm. Yeah, it will do so much more harm because this person who is who is supposed to help me get better is just like everyone else in my life. Mm-hmm. And it is no excuse that Sean did not know about Will's history of physical trauma. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, of course that's not an excuse. All of that said, boundary setting. Mm. Physical assault aside, uh, I don't know quite where I'm going with this. Well, so you're so boundary setting, and we do see with this first session between Sean and Will. Will brushing up against Sean's boundaries and Sean then setting those boundaries, which is appropriate in therapy. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'll talk about more about self-disclosure, but that definitely is a part of those boundaries that there are some things I'm going to talk about and some things I'm not going to talk about about my personal self. And I, I think that the boundary setting in that session could have gone better <laughs> I, I think yeah there were ways to set that boundary that didn't involve physical assault well not even just the physical assault but could have been done without as much defensiveness or out as without as much argument because mm-hmm. it's, it's very clear that sean's character is being is dealing with his own stuff in the situation. Right. Um, and letting stuff get override his feelings in the session. Right. Which yeah, it is is not great from a therapy perspective, but it is a very human thing. You know, your therapist is a human being. Yeah. And they do have their own blind spots and sore spots and sometimes patients will blunder into those completely by accident or sometimes they'll go looking for them like will does so i i agree that it it wasn't um advisable from a therapeutic standpoint but it, it was a very understandable and humanizing moment for for sean to kind of react as strongly as he did if I were in that room I and I had reacted that strongly to something a patient said, I would want to talk about it in a future session and kind of work through that, you know, very minor rupture. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and for, for anyone who's not clear what we're talking about, uh, we're told that Sean's wife died of cancer about two years before the events of the film. So he's uh, grieving her death. Yeah, it it could have he could have established that boundary much less argumentatively and in a more um, therapeutic kind of way. That I'm a little torn on. Yeah, I I, I can see that. It is very human, and of course, this is 
a show, so we wanted to see the humanization of Sean's character. I don't know. There was just something. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know where my thought was going to go with that. I think the way the way Sean uh, established that boundary, you know, with the language he used, would have you know could have worked much better if they had been further into the relationship Mm -hmm. because like you know in a first session you're sort of feeling each other out you're trying to get to know each other once the relationship has existed for a while and you've sort of become comfortable and familiar with each other then you can kind of you know take the kid gloves off a little bit but yeah in in a first session it's a very understandable moment from a human perspective but it's that would that would be a pretty big therapy blunder even before the physical assault. I yeah, I think cause I'm I'm just thinking if a session went like that. I I mean, of course, Will is court mandated, but also like I wouldn't see I probably wouldn't see that client come back. Yeah. <laughs> or even without the assault, that type of session. And with a highly intelligent, highly uh, resistant patient like Will, who is clearly trying to find the sore spots, you maybe don't want to make the sore spots quite so obvious. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, there was you know every indication that Will was just going to keep using that to essentially torture Sean. Until he solved it by choking Will out. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Resolved. I do think the the moment where he says like you know i want him back here in my office later this week or whatever i do think that that was kind of an important moment mm-hmm. because you know when you do have that rupture with a patient you do want to demonstrate that like you still care about them mm-hmm. you still want to see them <laughs> yeah especially after we've seen the previous therapists Assuming each one is just one session and then they drop Will. But right. to have that experience after a rupture where the therapist says, yeah, of course, I'm still going to work with you. Yeah, of course, I'm still here to help. Right. It's just in the therapeutic relationship. And then their, uh, their, their second meeting goes a little differently. Yes. Uh, the second session takes place at a park. Mm-hmm. And this time it's really just Sean talking. Mm-hmm. And it falls into a trope we've talked about before. The the therapist who just drops some hard truths. I think the phrase I decided to use was drop some H-bombs, where H is for healing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um... <laughs> it's uh i mean it's it's pretty stunning like they've spent no more than five minutes together and sean just delivers this absolutely beautiful reason you suck speech which i'm not gonna lie it works dramatically like i was fully in this scene but beautiful wonderful Beautiful acting, yeah. beautiful writing, whatever. But yeah, it, it it plays into that trope of like, 
therapists can just know everything about you just by looking at you. And the idea of like interpretation and how, how therapists use interpretation, which is a huge disconnect between what I think a lot of the general population understands about therapy and what actual therapy is. Yeah. Because there's this big myth that therapists just are have these stellar interpretations of and they drop that on them and that is truth and that is exactly what's going on they can interpret this based on as we see in the film just five minutes of an interaction yeah they can determine this based on your body language and your your choice of words in any given sentence and imperceptible cues to the untrained eye but we have magic training that allows us to essentially read minds and um that's not the case (laughs) in in reality interpretations are often used sparingly later on in the therapeutic relationship after Lots of information has been gathered. Lots of rapport has been built. Patterns have been noticed. You want to have the clients make their own interpretations first before anything else. And you stick with the client's interpretations as best you can. And any interpretation offered by a therapist is going to be tentative. You're going to get the client's permission to even make an interpretation. And you're going to see how that fits with the client's ideas about themselves and if that interpretation fits for them. Very different than what people think. One of the richest veins in therapy can often be the therapist makes an interpretation and the patient tells you why it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you get to talk about how the patient actually sees it and how what you've observed as the therapist that led you to the interpretation that you made and you know what the what the patient is aware of, what the patient is, you know, kind of maybe doing subconsciously. Yeah. It's supposed to be a dialogue. <laughs> This session is not a dialogue in the slightest. It's a very beautiful monologue. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are are profoundly disappointed when they go into therapy and the therapist can't tell them, you know, these deep truths about themselves almost immediately. Yeah, definitely run into that before. I've known a lot of people who tell me that they go into therapy to get themselves figured out. If that's in the service of meeting a goal to make your life better in some way, great. If you just want someone to deliver deep, meaningful truths about you with no... uh, (laughs) no you know goal in mind for that other than like Mm -hmm. i don't know you like hearing deep meaningful truths about yourself you're better off taking a buzzfeed quiz (laughs) yeah yeah because therapy is meant and i think this is a 
in Goodwill Hunting, I think there's another on the same topic, I think there's another issue in that there really is no treatment goal other than they kind of get to the point where it's like, okay, they want Will to have a plan for his future. And that becomes the goal. But I know it, it seems like the very beginning it's not really directed towards anything. And I, I think it's actually a little bit of truth there with court-mandated cases. Yeah. I mean, like, except in cases of, like, substance use, where the goal is to become abstinent from your, your substance or substances, court-mandated therapy often doesn't really have a specific goal, at least at first. You know, maybe you... you well, no, you definitely work with your patient over time to develop a goal um, mm -hmm. in an ideal scenario. But that's also part of the reason court-mandated therapy is often difficult and fruitless. There is no goal yeah. other than meeting the requirements of the court so that you don't go to jail. Yeah, so it can look like some of these sessions we see with Will, where it's just kind of back and forth, talking, building a relationship, but for what exact purpose? We don't know. And he does end up benefiting from therapy, but yeah, there never seems to be a clear treatment goal. Will is someone who would have benefited from motivational interviewing or motivational enhancement therapy. Yes. Do you want to talk about what that is? Or? I do. Yay. Because I love motivational enhancement. So do I. Uh, I don't know if I can explain it well or concisely, but I'm going to do my damnedest. So motivational enhancement is a tool that you can use with patients who are not clear on what they want from therapy or not necessarily clear on if they want therapy at all. And the goal of motivational enhancement is to get the client thinking about the things that are important to them in their life and how particular patterns of behavior might be interfering with that. So like a really classic example is a patient who is ambivalent about quitting smoking. And you ask your patient on a scale of one to 10, how motivated are you to quit smoking? And maybe your patient says, I'm at a six. Okay, why did you say six instead of two? Like, what are your reasons for wanting to quit? Mm -hmm. And the goal is to get the patient to start talking about change. You always want the patient to be left with change talk, and you want it to be coming from them. So instead of sitting there telling them the benefits of quitting smoking, you let the patient tell you how they will benefit from quitting smoking. Yeah, exactly. It's it's placing the mode. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's enhancing that motivation in the person by letting them direct what their motivators are, their reasons for change. And really, you know, talking about rolling with resistance, that's there's a lot in motivational enhancement and motivational interviewing because you are letting the clients come up with their own reasonings and accepting when the reasons you would think are most quote-unquote appropriate 
Um, if the client doesn't buy into it, that's okay. It's about what a client needs and wants and values. So if we were going to use motivational interviewing on Will, we might start with a question like, you know, is there anything in your life that you think could be better or that you want to change? And he would probably come back with a really smart ass answer like, no, I'm good. Or the only change I would make is just not being here. And you can kind of, you can go like lots of different directions with that. That could be, <clears throat> you know, you could kind of do a, a sort of paradoxical, like, oh, okay, great. Your life is perfect. So like absolutely everything in your life is precisely the way you want it to be. You don't need any more money. You know, I know you've recently been fired, but you clearly enjoy being unemployed if your life is perfect. And kind of, you can take a more yeah. sarcastic kind of attitude. Another route to go, especially with clients that are forced into treatment or mandated to treatment, is recognizing that they still have a choice. And it'd be like, okay, well, why are you here? Well, my PO made me come. Okay, well, you still have a choice. You could have defied your PO. I yeah, know like, you've defied PO before. Did <laughs> like, your PO why? have a gun to your head? Yeah. Why, why listen to your PO? Well, then I'll go to jail. Okay, well, why not go to jail? Yeah, and then, how is this preferable? Yeah, this, is this better than jail? Not better than jail? Like, tell me why. In jail, they don't make you talk about your feelings like this. So uh, yeah. why are you here? And they began to, to talk about their reasons why they make the choices. Even if they, even there is a perceived minimal choices, why the choices they're making to come to see you, come to therapy, and it's a good place to start. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's actually a much better place to start than than my snark-laden approach. Um, <laughs> he, I mean, Will might like the snark. Will, yeah, a patient like Will might respond to the snark. Um, I, I imagine he would respond with further snark. Mm -hmm. But, I don't know, that might have a rapport-building effect. Um, and that's the fun thing about therapy. You get to try lots of different things. Yeah. So there's the third session, which I have had this session. <laughs> I've never had exactly this session, but I've had very close to this session. So in the third session, we'll... And John meets, and it is a complete hour of silence. And there appears to be a lot of staring, too. And staring. And Sean, as he states after, he can't talk first. Will has to be the one to talk first. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll scratch that. I've had variations of this kind, but I've definitely had sessions where the client says nothing. <laughs> and my God, that is hard. It is painful and awkward. <laughs> Dear listeners, I want you to imagine sitting in an office alone with another human, just the two of you, and neither of you says a word for an hour. And there's nothing to do there's no like TV or music in the background. It is just silence for an hour. You are sitting across from one another. 
it's excruciating. But it happens. <laughs> yes. And like I, I think with the movie, it shows Sean's dedication to letting the client lead. Mm-hmm. And it is kind of an interesting example of meeting the client where they are. You know, Will isn't ready to talk yet. Okay. Don't talk. We don't have to talk. I'm here when you're ready. They kind of imply that it's this weird, like, unspoken rule of working class folks, though, rather than a therapeutic choice. Yeah. Like, the the movie implies that it's sort of a power play between Will and Sean, and whoever, you know, speaks first surrenders the power, which is kind of a fucked up way to frame it. Yeah. I, I couldn't tell if that was just like played off as the joke. Oh, I can't speak first. That's that's how I kind of read it. It's just Robin Williams being a comedian. <laughs> yeah, portraying it to how another person might view it. It definitely happens in therapy. Sometimes more often than we'd like to see it. I think with uh, yeah, silence can be an. Um, just a part of therapy. And I think a lot of young, brand new therapists are very uncomfortable with silence. And a lot of patients can be uncomfortable with silence as well. Mm-hmm. And their their next meeting starts to go kind of the same way until like, Will finally breaks the silence by you know telling this silly joke, which is an interesting place to start. Yeah. I don't I really mean, know it, what to make of it. And it's consistent with who Will is. A lot. Uh, the, the consistent theme with Will is that so much of what he's willing to share, his experiences are not actually his experiences, but what he's read or a joke or a story mm-hmm. about something that either happened to someone else or hasn't happened. I did find it somewhat interesting that um, the part of Robin Williams's big reason you suck speech that will decided to address most directly was the part where robin williams suggests that he's he's never truly been in love and like maybe he's had sex and will is just like i've had sex i've totally done that (laughs) (laughs) that's the part that needs clear clearing up he doesn't challenge Sean's assertion that he's never been in love or that he's never loved anything romantically mm-hmm. or otherwise. It's almost like a tacit admission, like, oh, yeah, you're, you're right. But yeah, so in this, in this first session, like, this is where we get the, uh, the really, you know, the famous, like, riff about how Robin Williams's or Sean's wife used to fart when she was nervous. Mm-hmm. Which, again, yep. is is actually Robin Williams um, riffing. Like that was not in the script. That was just ad libbing. Yeah, and this is this is where we come to self disclosure. Self disclosure is any any time a therapist discloses something about themselves, and this can happen on multiple levels. So it can be as much as self disclosing about one's training and one's experience to something very personal about their 
life. And self-disclosure is one of those things that is going to vary from professional to professional. I, you can attest this, Kelly. I feel like we've had each professor has a different perspective on self-disclosure. Each supervisor has a different, each setting has a different idea of self-disclosure. Like one professor had such an extreme aversion to self-disclosure that when her patients would greet her in the waiting area and just say, how are you? She would not respond. Like she wouldn't actually say how she's doing, <laughs> which. Yeah, that's a pretty extreme. <laughs> yeah, like that's, um, you know, it was consistent with her own theory of, of therapy, but uh it, it is a rather extreme example of refusing self-disclosure. On the other end, and I tend to fall a little bit more in this direction, I've had, you know, a, a supervisor say, it's really hard for someone to sit and be vulnerable with you and never get any vulnerability in return. Definitely, yeah. And... Yeah, so you're going to see self-disclosure across the spectrum, and this can be based in one's theoretical orientation, uh, but there's lots of rationale for whether or not you use self-disclosure or not. Mm-hmm. Some of the main rationales why you don't use self-disclosure is to prevent bias, prevent the session from becoming about the therapist as opposed to the client. Uh, for very old school to allow the the therapist to be a complete blank screen that the the client can project upon without any kind of like bias oh this this therapist has this experience therefore they're going to have this reaction to me they're just a, a neutral a completely neutral canvas mm-hmm. very psychoanalytic approach mm-hmm. and the other important thing about self-disclosure is kind of what we started talking about earlier is boundary setting. At one point, Will says, you know, we're friends. And I was very disappointed that Sean didn't correct him. Yeah. That's one of the weirdest things about the therapist-patient relationship is that in almost every way, it feels like a friendship or Mm -hmm. it can feel like a friendship. Extremely intimate. There's support, emotional availability, but it's still not a friendship. Yeah, and it it can't be because a friendship is meant to be reciprocal. A therapy relationship, by definition, can't be reciprocal. And I think with with the portrayal by Sean, I think, and this is my own personal bias, but I think the self-disclosure went way too far to the other extreme of too much self-disclosure to the point where sessions were more about him at times compared to about being about will yeah like sessions became reciprocal in some way which again you know works dramatically but is not how therapy is supposed to work like will was trying to challenge sean on why he hasn't dated since his wife died which you know he was making the point like how can you tell me to put myself out there when you're not willing to do it which you know is maybe a good point and is also maybe (laughs) evidence that sean has disclosed too much yeah 
I think, yeah, that, that too much disclosure, revealing so much about yourself as a therapist can result in some of those things where while you're supposed to look human, you can also look incompetent and someone that the the client cannot trust with their problems. Yeah. Or it can kind of blur that relationship to the point where, you know, the patient does think that you're friends. That can be quite the letdown when they realize that, oh, we're not friends. You're providing me a service. And I can't treat my friends like my therapist. It can be a hard but fruitful conversation to have because telling someone we're not friends is never a fun conversation. But I do think that you made a your last comment about can't treat friends like therapists can be a very enlightening conversation to have with some people. Yeah, talking about the difference between a friendship and a therapeutic relationship, like a professional relationship can be really important and can be very revealing about how that person, you know, thinks about their friends. So yeah, Sean, Sean both uses self-disclosure very well and overuses it. Yeah, I would agree. And the, the annoying thing is that there's not really a clear line on what is too much and what is, what is not enough. No, there really isn't. And it's hard to say what is realistic versus unrealistic. And the biggest thing I think is goodness it fits. Like there are some therapists that are going to be very self-disclosing versus very not. And there are some clients that really want to know their therapist and that's how they connect. And there are some clients that don't. So it can be kind of a hard thing to say what is right and what is wrong. Right. But there is, I mean, there is a kind of, you know it when you see it kind yeah. of level here where it's like, ooh, that's too much. Or, ooh, that's not enough. <laughs> and I think clearly, you know, that scene, that first moment where Sean is talking about his wife, because Will has just said that, you know, he doesn't want to call up this girl that he just had this great date with and he's crazy about her because he's worried that he'll find out her imperfections and then he won't like her. And Sean kind of astutely notices, you know, maybe you're worried that she'll find out your imperfections and not like you, which is obviously the case. Yeah. (laughs) And that's when he starts talking about, you know, his wife's flatulence Mm. and It's such a good example of self-disclosure used well, because one, it's funny and humor is always a good way to build rapport. It's relevant. I don't want to find out imperfections about this person. Here's a story about imperfections in a person I loved. And part of what I loved about her were her imperfections. And, And it is this very humanizing moment at a point in the relationship where Will doesn't really take Sean seriously. Mm -hmm. Doesn't quite think of him as a person yet. More sees him as an obstacle. So I I, I agree. I think that was a good, a a good example of self-disclosure. And it's because it was done very intentionally. And it didn't take away from the patient's experience. Mm -hmm. And 
this is more of a from the the side of the therapist side harder to notice if you're a client or patient but often what i have been told by different supervisors when it comes to self-disclosure is you're thinking about telling something about yourself is this about you or about them Mm -hmm. are you trying to vent something are you trying to get something out are you trying to feel validated and if that's the case that may be an inappropriate use i wanted to talk about the it's not your fault scene yeah kind of infamous yeah uh dramatically powerful oh yeah dramatically i mean it it was maybe a little over the top but like i you know welled up and all that i'm not made Mm. of stone we have hearts (laughs) so in this scene robin williams has finally been furnished with will's court records it's a mystery why he didn't have this before but he has it now and only then learns the full extent of will's history of physical trauma at the hands of his foster father um, as well as his abandonment by his biological parents and sean just keeps repeating it's not your fault and will at first kind of is like yeah i know and then he starts getting angry and then ultimately he he breaks down in tears and and starts hugging Sean and it's this massive catharsis it's this breakthrough moment and i think it's their last session that scene really bothered me yeah. from a therapy perspective yeah well first off is the whole like breakthrough trope mm-hmm. uh, the idea that this one one instance hearing this word repeated it breaks through the barriers and suddenly things are yeah and that there's just this instant improvement all of a sudden like he's applying for jobs he ultimately makes the decision to follow mini driver out to california also like and and this goes with like the he should have i mean he should have had the the court reports before but like there's something about bringing that up with the client before they talk about it because it's been very clear that will is not ready to talk about his trauma and to be like i read your file i know i know about all your trauma let's talk about it just felt clumsy at best (laughs) no i didn't really bump on that while i agree that you should take the patient's lead with how disclosing they're willing to be about trauma. I do think there can be something, you know, that's kind of a relief for patients to be able to say, or to be able to tell them like, I have read your file. I know kind of what you've been through and I am here. If you want to talk about it, I also understand if you don't. So yeah, I don't think the misstep really was like, saying that he knew about it maybe a misstep in saying like let's talk about it now yeah maybe i think that's the part that was mostly like uh, for me the right we're gonna dive deep into this 
during our first time really talk, really even mentioning it. Right. And just, you know, there can be healing for a patient to hear that, you know, the things that they've been through are not their fault. But it is always going to be more powerful coming from the patient. When the patient can say out loud and mean it, it's not my fault. It was never my fault. I mean, again, like, it, it's hard to show in a you know 90 minute movie. But that is part of why therapy can take such a long time. And why it can be such a slow yeah. process. Because yes, I would love to be able to tell all of my patients, it's not your fault this happened to you. And for them to just instantly accept it and be fine. But the patient has to accept it. The patient has to believe it. Yeah. And I think this, this scene is very much like the therapist is being the active agent here, not mm-hmm. the client. Yeah. The therapist is one healing through repeating this phrase versus the client actually coming to this conclusion and yeah. internalizing it. Or, I mean, it shows to internalizing it, but that's just not reality. <laughs> so, yeah, that moment really bothered me for that reason. It, it creates this expectation for people who see it that, like, therapy is something that will be done to me by a professional who can zero in on all of my personality flaws and tell me what's wrong with me. The the magical therapist that can read minds and say the right thing and we're wizards. And is always right. The therapist is always correct. Always make perfect interpretations and might physically assault you, but otherwise will never make a misstep. And the assault actually ends up being therapeutic anyway. So the therapist never makes a misstep. Uh, No, we are wrong all the time. We might make a guess. We might start a certain type of treatment. We might engage in a certain type of activity with a client. And it may not be a good fit. And that's Mm -hmm. okay. And it's our job to listen and see if that was a good fit. And if it's not, we own that and accept it and talk about it. Yeah. And, you know, like we, like we said earlier, mistakes on the therapist's part can be some of the richest territory in therapy. So, it, yeah, it's, it's really disappointing that more depictions of therapists don't show therapists making mistakes and then working through them with their patients. Unless there's just egregious mistakes and they're just the worst. But I think, and even even in this film, we see that. We see either the therapist is perfect or terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The therapists that just don't work at all, they're terrible, they make bad guesses, bad judgments, and give up on their clients. But good therapists never make mistakes. Right. Good therapists are perfect. So, Sean McGuire, um, I would say probably a middling to okay representation of therapy. I'd agree. Middling to okay. 
yeah. Overall, I do appreciate that this movie has a positive outlook on therapy. I think it does break down, and maybe this is something that in the past 20 years has changed, but this this idea of the therapist as just the, the stuffed shirt expert. Mm-hmm. That there can be those more Rogerian, down to earth type therapists that do connect and do use trust and do roll with resistance and are human. Yeah. Yeah. That is a good that is a good thing. <laughs>